Have you ever had somebody try to talk you out of doing something? I had a conversation this week with Laura Craig about things that we had tried to talk others out of or others had tried to talk us out of. Some of those things included mullets, leg warmers, and earrings. Actually, I had an earring once for about a week. People tried to talk me out of it. Uh, they couldn't, and it was, it was not, not a great experiment. Other times, you know, there, there are things like the earring, or, or, you know, Chelsea tried to talk me out of cutting my hair this week, and no, alas, she could not. We all have things that we can look back on in our life where, wherein we had people try to talk us out of them, and we did them anyway, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. This morning, as we come to Acts chapter 21 and the first 14 verses, really, we're going to find that Paul's friends are trying to talk him out of going to Jerusalem. This is going to turn out to be bad advice. Because good advice always leads us to obey God's word. And what, what we know, and I don't think that they do yet, is that Paul has a clear compulsion, clear revelation from the Holy Spirit that he is to go to Jerusalem. And so, despite the well-intentioned pleading of his friends, despite the fact that certain suffering awaits him in Jerusalem, Paul resolves to continue on his journey to the holy city for the name of Jesus Christ. His aim is to bring God glory, not to keep himself alive. And that's our main idea this morning, that the goal of the Christian life is not to avoid suffering, but to glorify God. Now I'm going to exhort you this morning to walk by faith and not by sight. To consider those things which are eternal rather than constantly looking to those things which are temporal. You see our outline there, going to be a little different today. We'll talk about the Spirit's testimony throughout our passage. Then we'll talk about the counsel of Paul's friends and finally Paul's resolve before concluding our time together this morning. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for the past week. Some of us had wild weeks. Some of us had very boring weeks. We thank you for them both. We thank you that you have brought us here together this morning to begin a new week as your people, giving you honor and glory and praise. We pray that you would help us to start this week well and finish it well. That each step we take would be directed by your Holy Spirit and in obedience to your word. Ask that you would help me to preach a better sermon than I prepared now. And that you would cause the congregation to hear a better sermon than I preach. In our time together this morning, we implore you to glorify yourself. And to make us fall more desperately in love with Christ Jesus our Lord. In whose name we pray, amen. And so we've been going through the book of Acts, and in Acts, Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, the church goes out, and God brings people in. Some fireworks there, I call extra. God brings people in. 
And recently, we've been following Paul's footsteps as God does this on his third missionary journey. And so he's actually kind of concluding his third missionary journey now as he bid adieu to the Ephesian elders last week and said, be on your guard, wolves are going to come in. He's sure to protect the gospel. And now he's moving towards Jerusalem. And in each place, the Holy Spirit is testifying to him that when he gets to Jerusalem, he is going to suffer. We see the Spirit begin testifying to Paul all the way back in chapter 19, verse 21, when we read this. After these events, Paul resolved by the Holy Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. After I've been there, he said, it is necessary for me to see Rome as well. He also told of the Spirit's work in his life in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, which we saw last week. He says, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, bound by the Spirit, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. And as he continues, he leaves Ephesus, he's continuing on his journey towards Jerusalem, we find that the Spirit continues to testify to Paul, this time through the disciples at Tyre. Look at the first four verses of chapter 21. After we tore ourselves away from them, them being the Ephesian elders, we set sail straight for Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded, boarded it and set sail. After we sighted Cyprus, passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria and arrived at Tyre, since the ship was to unload its cargo there. We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. And through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. What's happening here? Well, what's not happening is the Holy Spirit is not contradicting himself. He hasn't compelled Paul to go to Jerusalem in chapter 19 and in chapter 20 and told him, hey, sufferings await for you there. And now the Holy Spirit through the disciples entire saying, actually on second thought, Paul, that affliction and imprisonment thing, it sounds quite dangerous. And so don't go. And so we have to ask, well, what is happening in this text? And I think what we have is an interpretation of the revelation of the Holy Spirit. You with me? And so these disciples entire, when they receive the Holy Spirit's warning, the Holy Spirit's testimony to them, that Paul is going to suffer in Jerusalem, they then move from just delivering the prophecy to Paul to also giving an interpretation of it. They give Paul instruction. They say, Paul, the Spirit is telling us that you are going to suffer in Jerusalem. Therefore, we are concluding that you should not go. Say, very pragmatic conclusion. It, may, it makes sense, but it's a very wrong conclusion. Even though Paul is going to suffer when he gets to Jerusalem, he is still to go there. He's also warned when he comes to Caesarea by a prophet named Agabus. We see this in verses 7 through 11. So when we completed our voyage from Tyre, we reached Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters 
and stayed with them for a day. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Verse 9 is kind of a fun footnote. We don't really learn anything else about these virgin daughters except for they prophesy, but they don't give the prophecy here because Agabus is going to show up and do that for us. Also, just a, a fun fact, the Philip here is uh, Philip the Evangelist. Remember, he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch back in chapter 8. He's also one of those who was set to the task of caring for the widows in chapter 6, one of those seven proto-deacons. So he's a man of faith, and I think we're, we're just given these details to distinguish him from Philip the Apostle. So at any rate, they're staying at Philip's house, and we read in verse 10, after we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus, whom we've also met before, he prophesied a famine that would come to Jerusalem, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And so Agabus comes and he testifies to Paul that indeed, as the Spirit has bound him to go to Jerusalem, that's verse 23 of chapter 20, Paul says he's bound to go. He's going to be bound by the Jews and handed over to the Romans. This prophecy here is not literal but causistic. The Jews are the ones who are going to cause Paul to be bound, and it is fulfilled when Paul gets to Jerusalem. You might ask, though, you say, this is kind of weird, right? And this guy finds Paul's belt somewhere. I don't even know if he takes it off his waist, but he gets Paul's belt. He ties his own hands and his own feet, and then he makes this pronouncement. You go, well, why? This seems really weird to us, but it's not actually that foreign to the Bible. If you go into the Old Testament and you look at what the prophets do, they do some dramatic and what we would consider odd things. One thinks of Jeremiah breaking a bunch of pots before an audience. Or of Ezekiel being commanded by God to, break, to bake bread over top of human waste. Or perhaps uh, even that odd three-year period where Isaiah was commanded to walk around naked among the people. But why were the prophets doing these things? Why does Agabus do the, this thing? I think the reason is that these are called, we call these sign acts, where the prophets are actually acting out their prophecy in their own lives in some way. And the point of it is to kind of serve as like a visual aid or an illustration so that God's word would be made very memorable to you, very poignant, right? It's hard to miss the point when a guy has been walking around for three years naked. It's hard to miss the point when Agabus has bound himself with Paul's belt and is saying, as I am now bound, so too Paul will be if he goes to Jerusalem. This is a difficult pronouncement. The Spirit is testifying that Paul is going to suffer when he gets to Jerusalem. But we would be wrong to arrive at the conclusion, as those in Tyre did, that Paul shouldn't go because he's going to suffer. And the big point I want to make here is, is that this suffering isn't taking God by surprise. 
Suffering is not outside of the purview of God's sovereignty. Suffering doesn't happen outside of God's plan. He's telling Paul it's going to happen. He's directing him into it. God is at work in suffering. Friends, it is important for us to recognize that our primary goal in life is not to pursue extraordinary and constant comfort. Our goal, sorry, that slipped down, slipped up, got loud, is not to try to figure out how we might avoid suffering because suffering is, is just awful and terrible. I'm not saying that it's good, but when it comes to the Christian, it's not the end of the world because the Christian can say, God's brought this suffering into my life. He's planned it, and it's for my good. Right? When Paul goes into Jerusalem and ends up bound and handed over to the Romans, the, the Lord is not in heaven going, what are we going to do? Oh no, Paul has been bound. No. It's the way things are happening according to plan. I am going to glorify myself in Paul's suffering, through his suffering. Friends, it's easy to forget that you are so loved by God. You're so loved by God. And that means everything that happens to you happens for you, right? This is the meaning of, of that famous passage in Romans 8, 28. That those who are chosen by God, loved by God, those who are following Jesus, says everything that happens in your life happens according to God's plan. I'm paraphrasing it. But it happens for your good and for his glory. So if it's happening to you, even if it's terrible, awful, in that moment, it's ultimately going to be for your ultimate good, and it's ultimately for the glory of God. I mean, God is at work in both the tremendous sufferings we encounter in this life, loss of a loved one, tragic accidents. He's at work there. But I also want you to understand that he's at work in all things. He's at work in the every day of your life, those details. Fulfilling his purposes for you, which ultimately is to bring glory to himself. I was meditating on this this week, throughout the week, and I had a number of things go wrong, which sometimes happens when you're going to make a particular point in a sermon. The Lord goes, I'm going to try to make you apply this. And the first one's a little silly, but, but I, you know, I was cooking breakfast for my children one day. It doesn't happen all that often. Chelsea usually does most everything in my house. Um, but I'm, I'm cooking breakfast, and I run into that problem, and you've probably all had this, right? You run out of butter, but you need the butter to put it on the toast or, or to grease your pan. And so you go into the refrigerator or the freezer and you get one of them sticks out if you're like me and you, you put it on the butter dish and you put it in the microwave, right, to loosen it up so it gets nice and soft and then you can get it on there and, you know, you're good to go. Well, naturally, I put it in the microwave, I set it and then I start doing other things and I come back and there's just a puddle of butter. And I ask myself, but typically uh, I'm not super patient and so this would really frustrate me. Stupid butter, stupid me, stupid day. 
It's not even seven yet. The whole day is ruined. Butter all over the microwave. But as I was preaching this text this week, how God is sovereign and at work in our biggest trials and in our smallest inconveniences, and I said, this is a small inconvenience. But what is God doing here? I don't know for certain. But I do know that because I'm thinking about how God is at work, I can ask myself some questions. What might God be teaching me about patience? What might God be teaching me about my attitude? How might God, in this moment of just ordinary melted butter, be directing my heart to himself? How can I glorify God when things don't go the way I want? In the ordinary, every day. And so I just prayed, Lord, thank you for this mess. It reminds me that my happiness is not contingent on everything being perfect. It has reminded me that I have an opportunity to enjoy you. That even having butter in my refrigerator is a great privilege. You are wonderful and you are good. I'm so thankful that you don't love me because I am perfect, but because my Savior is perfect. Because Jesus is perfect. Just, when you get this perspective on your life, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change how you encounter everything. Right? I also had an ER visit this week, which is, that's like run-of-the-mill stuff in my house now. We just had a laceration, had to go to the ER. And I was like, man, initially, you know, the whole evening is gone. I said, no, 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 God is, is at work here. He's sovereign over tremendous suffering, and he's sovereign over these little itty-bitty inconveniences. This is an opportunity for for me to turn to you in prayer again and to spend time with one of my sons one-on-one and maybe even to encourage employees at the emergency room. Maybe you're doing other things here too, Lord, I I, I don't know. But I I trust you and you're good. This This is for my good. Thank you. God is sovereign over your suffering and over inconveniences in the ordinary. Like, when you realize this, it will put a vein of steel in you and a skip in your step. It will embolden you to enjoy God in the midst of frustrations that are ordinary. Now, when you get a flat tire. And it will ready you to enjoy God when you get the tremendous difficulty. When you go to the doctor and he says, you have six months to live. Because you're able to turn your attention to the Lord as you've trained yourself. God, I know that you are sovereign. I know that you love me. And this is for my good and for your glory. My life is yours to spend. I I want you to spend it however you deem fit. Even if it's through cancer. Even if it's through dying young rather than growing old. I trust you. This is, this is the posture of walking by faith in God and in the eternal rather than in the temporal. This is how we see by faith rather than by sight. Which says when it gets the cancer diagnosis, life is over. I'm done. Testimony of the Spirit is that Paul will suffer and it's a wrong conclusion that he should avoid that suffering. Because the primary goal of the Christian life is not to avoid suffering, it's not to pursue comfort, it's to glorify God. 
Next we see in these passages that Paul receives counsel from his friends. From his friends. Uh, and he has friends everywhere sprinkled throughout the passage. And we see uh, back in the end of chapter 20, he's with the Ephesian elders. He, we, he, after this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Then he goes to Tyre. And the disciples there, they tell him not to go to Jerusalem. He's resolved to go. And we read in verse 5, When our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey. While all of them, with their wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. We can have a repeat. After kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said farewell to one another and boarded the ship. And they returned home. And uh, down in verse 17, see Paul gets to Jerusalem finally. The brothers and sisters there welcomed us warmly. It's got friends all over. It's got good friends. And what we shouldn't miss, miss amidst all the travel details is that Paul has real relationships with people and that they really care about him. I mean, folks in Tyre, he doesn't even know a week. Did you see that at the first part of verse 4? We sought out the disciples there and stayed there. Like, they don't know these people. They haven't been there before. We're going to find the Christians here, and we're going to stay with them for a week, confident in the hospitality they were going to receive. Everybody's like, man, am I hospitable like this? I wonder about you if missionaries showed up at your house tonight and said, we need to stay for about a week. Are you ready to do something like that? Is that, is that the, the posture of your heart? I also love how Paul is praying. He prays at the end of Ephesus. He prays when he leaves Tyre. It's like, man, I would love to recover this practice of prayer in the ordinary ebb and flow. Like when I'm telling somebody, all right, see you later, that, that we go, hey, you know what, let, let me pray for you real quick. You know, Lord be with Jim as he goes from here about his day. We love you. Amen. I just wonder what, what we would look like if we were more mindful of the spiritual realities that are constantly about us. These friends are really good. It's good to have Christian friends. Throughout Acts, we see this importance of Christian friendship. And it is important because our relationship with God is tied to our relationship with others, right? When we're united with Jesus, we're united with other Christians. You can't love God and hate the church. If you have doubts about this, read 1 John for homework this afternoon. It's true. We're called to be in relationship with each other. And so I just think it's a really good principle to think about how can we cultivate friendship with one another? And I use the word friendship rather than fellowship because I think we've used the word fellowship very generally. Like we'll, we'll go to an event and say, oh yeah, the fellowship was great. And the reality is we talked to like two people and they were our wife and one of our kids. We didn't really engage in friendship with anyone. It would be a song when Elliot was younger that he loved. Probably still likes it. But it was really short. It went like this. It went, make new friends. Keep the old one is silver and the other gold. It sounds better than that. But I love it. Make new friends, keep the old one is silver, the other gold. You see the point of the little song. 
is that we want to maintain our old friendships because they are valuable, and we want to build new friendships because they are also valuable. So I wonder how we might cultivate new friendships this week with one another, with those in our community. How might we build a deeper intimacy within our our church? Paul's friends love him, they're good friends, and then they give him bad advice. Give him bad advice because it is short-sighted advice. We've seen what the believers entire say in verse 4. Look down at verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 12 on the heels of Agabus's prophecy. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. They, they don't want him to go. They, they can't reconcile Paul's suffering with God's plan. Doesn't it, doesn't it make more sense, Paul, great apostle, great evangelist, for you to stay alive? Like, won't you be able to do more of the Lord's work here, you know, outside of prison? This is, this is not very hard, very, very practical advice. It makes sense. It's reasonable. But it's short-sighted. It reminds me of... Um, Peter's conversation with Jesus in Matthew 16. I'm going to read from Matthew 16. So you can listen. I'm going to read verses 13 through 25. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, to be killed and to be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. May it never be, Lord. This will never happen to you. And Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Jesus will not allow earthly concerns to eclipse eternal priorities. 
and neither will Paul. Indeed, Paul will take up his cross and follow Jesus. He is resolved to lose his life for the glory of God. I mean, you, you can see the parallels between Paul's life and Jesus' life, right? You've got a man on a mission headed to Jerusalem and to certain suffering. Paul's kind of reenacting Jesus' last days. Headed to certain suffering whose friends encourage him not to go to that suffering. And who resolves to go nevertheless. You, you can understand Peter's argument, right? In his mind, immediately, it doesn't make sense for God's chosen Messiah King to die. Right? Messiahs don't lose, they win. That's the whole point of having a Messiah. They're conquering heroes, so crucified Messiah is oxymoronic. It's tantamount to saying frozen steam. Doesn't make sense. And Peter's saying, if you're the Messiah, you just told me you're the Messiah, I think you're the Messiah, that means that you are talking in a way that doesn't make any sense. He says, don't be silly. (laughs) We don't have to go and do that suffering. We're going to continue to minister and win. It seems reasonable, but it's wrong. Had, but like from Peter's perspective, at the time, that makes perfect sense for Jesus to avoid suffering. But from an eternal perspective, it's madness for Jesus to take up a earthly crown without going to a cross would be for him to abdicate his eternal throne. It would be for him to undo all the purposes of God. It would be to undo and to fail at redemption. It would be as if he gave in to that very first temptation that came from the mouth of Satan. Worship me and I will give you the kingdoms of earth. No, Jesus couldn't take a crown without a cross, without sacrificing you and me. But instead he resolved to go so that he could take that crown and share it with us, those who have faith. And so what was immediately reasonable would have been eternally catastrophic. God had purposed to accomplish his will through Jesus' suffering. And Peter came to understand this later, right in Acts 2, 22 through 24. He says, fellow Israelites, Listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him. Just as you yourselves know, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And then in Chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, Peter again. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. God's ways are too wonderful for us to understand. None of us would have conceived of a crucified Messiah 
And yet this is what God did. Instead of killing rebellious sinners who said, we will not submit to your authority, even though you are more glorious and great than any other being, we're, we, your created beings, are going to insist upon our autonomy and doing things our way, instead of snuffing us out like we deserved, instead of pouring out his wrath on us throughout all eternity, he sent Jesus Christ to live a perfect life and die a substitutionary death. The punishment that was due to all of our sins was poured out on Christ. The weight of damnation itself came down upon Jesus' shoulders on the cross so that you could be exonerated. And yet it seemed immediately, immediately reasonable to Peter for Jesus to never have gone to the cross at all. Friends, sometimes things can seem immediately reasonable but be entirely wrong. Just because something is reasonable doesn't mean it's right. Sometimes what is practical isn't what is faithful. Sometimes good intentions lead to ungodly behavior. Thus the ungodly counsel of Paul's friends that he ought to avoid suffering. Paul has the eyes of faith, though. He's not just looking at that which is transient. He's not looking around at the things of this life, which death ultimately steals away from us all. No, he has his eyes set on that which is eternal. And so he resolves to go. Look with me at verse 13. Then Paul replied, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And we, could, we could add to that verse 24 of chapter 20. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus, which is to testify to the gospel of God's Grace. Paul says, stop crying. You, you are wearing down my resolve to go. You're breaking my heart. Stop, stop mourning. Don't you understand? I'm not worried about suffering and afflictions. I'm ready to die for Jesus. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For the name of Jesus, I'm willing to do anything. They respond, the Lord's will be done. I heard a um, story of a young Coast Guardsman, about as green as they come. And early on in his tenure, a fierce storm arose out on the sea and a ship signaled its distress. 
And as he and his captain were beginning to uh, launch a rescue boat, he called out against the storm, If we go out, we'll never come back! The captain's voice returned over the sounds of thunder and the wind and the waves. We don't have to come back, but we do have to go out. That's what I think Paul is saying here. I don't have to come back. My responsibility is not to keep myself alive or comfortable. My responsibility is to obey God. And the Spirit is compelling me to go to Jerusalem. I'm ready to be bound. I'm ready to die. Because my ultimate goal in life is not about me. It's about magnifying the name of Jesus. It's not about avoiding suffering. It's about bringing glory to God. Paul can live like this because he believes there is a resurrection coming. He believes in Jesus who says, the one who trusts in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. He believes that Jesus is eternal life. He believes that Jesus raises the dead. His his chips are all in on the Jesus square. So too should ours be. We should have the same confidence in God's promises and His purposes. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for you and for me, which is to bring glory to Himself. And friends, the way that God is most glorified by us is when we are most satisfied in Him. We glorify God by enjoying Him as we obey Him. Paul is not begrudgingly headed to Jerusalem. He's going with a joy that circumstances cannot touch. Friends, when you know and love Jesus Christ, when you have that eternal life welling up within you, you become joyfully defiant in the face of inconvenience and suffering. Because your eyes are not in the moment. They are in eternity. You're walking by faith in God's promises and God's provision, not by sight looking at the things around you. I do think when I preach a message like this, that typically we walk away going, well, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to die for Christ. And I, I hope that's true. It's a good thing. Here's my problem, or my concern. I think many of us are willing to say, of course, Jesus is my all. I'm ready to die for him. And then we turn around and we're not not ready to live for him. What I mean is we'll say, Lord, my whole life is yours. Whatever you ask me to do, I'll do it. Unless it's to do the dishes to serve my spouse or to change diapers or to to get to church regularly or to move to Milwaukee. I just don't like it there. Or or, uh, to, to pray in the morning or to wake up early so I can seek you in your word. I'm willing to follow you as long as, long as it suits what I want to do at that particular moment. What it means is we, we speak in these real grandiose terms 
We have our eyes set to, you know, if I ever suffer tremendously, or if I ever need to go somewhere where I'm going to be persecuted, I'm ready to die for Jesus. But we're not, we're not willing to, in the ordinary, every day of our lives, live each tiny little moment to the glory of God. And I think we're called to do that. To do unspectacular, hard things well to the glory of Jesus Christ. So that when our, when our butter melts in a dish, that instead of dishonoring God in that moment with our anger or our frustration, that we're turning and giving Him honor and glory and praise. Learning to, to squeeze out of these little moments the joy that God has for us there. Friends, God uses your inconveniences and your sufferings to bring himself glory, to perfect you. That's what James says, chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Therefore, let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature, complete, perfect, lacking nothing. God is perfecting you even in your suffering. For the Christian, suffering is not an end in and of itself, but a vehicle through which God sanctifies, matures, perfects, and brings glory to himself. Hebrews 12, 7. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? Friends, your suffering and your inconveniences are not an indication that God is out of control in your life. They're, they're not evidence that God doesn't love you. It's just the opposite if you're a Christian. Instead of saying, God, how could you let this happen to me? Do you even care? Hebrews tells us our perspective should be, God, thank you for sending this to me. I know that you discipline those you love. I can't, I can't see how this is going to bring you honor and glory, but I know it is. You told me, you told me in Romans 8, this works together for my good and for your glory. I know, you tell me in James, that you're perfecting me through this. You're making me more like Jesus. You're bringing glory to yourself. And my life it isn't about filling up barns with wealth like the foolish farmer. I don't want to invest in the here and now. I want to invest in eternity where moth and rust do not destroy. I don't want to seek worldly prosperity. I want to seek first the kingdom of heaven and wait for you to give me all that righteousness and all the blessings that come from knowing Jesus Christ. My faith and my happiness and my joy are not in this moment. They are seated at your right hand. Jesus is my hope and my stay in my life is not to avoid suffering or to pursue comfort. My life is to glorify Him. This is the message of, verse, of Acts 21, verses 1-14. through 14, That we are not to stray from, as tempting as it may be, giving ourselves entirely to the glory of God. Let us be a people who walk by faith, but not by sight. 
a people who are aiming to glorify and enjoy God in the midst of suffering, believing that he will fulfill his purpose for us. Let's pray. Father, whenever the human soul turns itself to anything other than you, it is fixed in sorrows. We repent. We have all tied our hearts to transient things this week. Things that cannot satisfy things that will not last, things that death will ultimately destroy. Lord, your word alone endures forever. It will not perish. Neither will we when we trust this glorious word of truth, when we trust in the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so we beg you this morning, to lift our eyes off of our own navels so that we might see Christ as beautiful and all-satisfying, so that we might desire to feast upon Him. We might learn to enjoy You, a wonderful God. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.